Hello, and welcome to the history of Haiti. Henri Christophe was coronated in 1811 as the first king of Haiti. In this episode, Henri Christophe will become the last king of Haiti. As we will see in this episode, Christophe's kingdom will suddenly and violently collapse. And let me tell you, Christophe will have a much worse fate than Pétion or Boyer. In August, Christophe was attending church in the town of Limonade. During the mass, Christophe closed his eyes and leaned back in his throne. Then, suddenly, he fell face down onto the ground. Christophe was having a stroke. He was immediately cared for by probably the best doctor in his kingdom. He began slowly recovering, but this stroke left him physically and emotionally weak for the rest of his life, a time period of about two months. He was paralyzed on his right side. He could barely write and it was hard for him to travel. News of Christophe's stroke spread throughout the kingdom. Christophe was hated, and he stayed in power mostly because he was feared by everyone. His stroke showed people that he was weak. People were hopeful and joyous, believing that Christophe would soon die or be overthrown. People also became more rebellious, planning to overthrow Christophe. In the major cities of Le Cap and St. Mark, the generals began murmuring that perhaps now was the time to overthrow their king. The people who would leave, lead the revolution of 1820 were the soldiers of Christophe's kingdom. Christophe was basically a military dictator. But for a military dictator, Christophe did little to appease his soldiers. He maintained tense military discipline. Soldiers were often not paid. The common soldier believed that Christophe was a tyrant and wanted to overthrow him. As we saw during the siege of Port-au-Prince, the soldiers of Christophe were eager to defect to the Republic. Christophe himself was terrified that Boyer would march north with all, and all of Christophe's forces would defect to Boyer. In the city of Saint-Marc, there was the 8th Regiment. It was planning to revolt against Christophe, the commander of this regiment regiment, a guy named Paulin, who was 100% in on the conspiracy, got into an unrelated dispute with the Commandant of San Marc. The Commandant told Christophe that Paulin was insubordinating, and Christophe summoned Paulin to the Royal Palace at San Suki. Christophe chewed out Paulin and told him to turn in his epaulets. Then Paulin chucked a military award Christophe had given him on the ground and refused to turn in his epaulets. Christophe began one of his fits of rage over this, but after ordering Paulin to be executed, Christophe calmed down and was persuaded to only have him imprisoned and sent to the forced labor camp of Lafayette. The imprisonment of Paulin really ticked off the 8th Regiment, and it caused the planning of its revolt to speed up. Soldiers were motivated when they heard about Paulin's refusal to listen to Christophe. General Romain, who was near San St. Mark, and was one of Christophe's most important generals, learned they were planning a revolt. He went to St. Mark, hoping to suppress the revolt before it even started. Once in St. Mark, he announced to the officers that he knew about the conspiracy and that he would review the garrison the next day. The idea was that he would arrest the conspirators during the revolt. Most of the officers were, however, in on the conspiracy to revolt, so they decided that they needed to strike before Romain had the chance to arrest them. During the evening of October 1st, one of the main conspirators went to the armory of 
St. Mark and met with the commander of the armory, a member, a member of the conspiracy. They and the garrison of the armory mutinied and declared themselves in revolt. This was the spark that lit the bonfire that burnt Kristoff alive. After the revolt in the armory, the rest of the 8th Regiment took up arms against Kristoff. The Commandant of St. Mark came over to them, and he was greeted by cheers of Viva la Liberty, Viva la Republic. The Commandant then shot and killed one of the mutinous officers, wherein a volley was unleashed on him. He was shot and killed. Then the insurgents cut off his head. Romain fled the city, leaving the whole of St. Mark, except the fort on the outskirts of the city, to the insurgents. From this fort, Romain called on reinforcements from Christophe and began a siege of St. Mark. For the next week, there would be little light fighting around St. Mark. Inside St. Mark, the leaders decided to try to unify with the Republic. So they put the commander's head in or the commandant's ha head in a bag, and sent it south with some soldiers to tell Boyer that St. Mark had revolted. When Boyer received these soldiers, he sent a boat north with supplies and a commander to take over St. Mark. This commander established control over St. Mark and led its fight against Romain. Boyer also sent an expeditionary army north to help St. Mark and called on the military of the Republic to assemble in Port-au-Prince in preparation to march north. Word of the St. Mark insurrection spread throughout the kingdom. Like Christoph's stroke, it created a wave of revolutionary activity. Units disbanded, soldiers returned home or revolted, the population of the Artibonite district defected to the Republic. And when word spread to Cap Haitian, it too joined St. Mark in revolt. The senior officers of Cap Haitian, which I'll just call Le Cap, had been planning a revolt since the summer of 1820, and Christophe Stroke had hastened their preparations. In Le Cap, there were the 1st and 2nd Regiments, who numbered 3,000 soldiers. Like the 8th in San Marc, the 1st and 2nd were planning a revolt. For three days after learning about the revolt in San Mark, the population of La Cap prepared for a revolt. The plans for the insurgency came to a head when the 1st and 2nd regiments, who had been ordered to leave the city to go besiege San Mark, were counter-ordered not to leave the city by one of the conspirators, a senior officer. Then, a Christophe loyalist ordered them to leave the city. The conspirators had this guy beaten, and on August 6th, they declared Le Cap in revolt. He was not killed, though, and so he fled the city. In contrast to San Mark, where it was just ungovernable chaos until the Republican commander showed up, in Le Cap, somewhat of a provisional government was established of the senior officers. There was still chaos. For example, the treasury of Le Cap was looted by soldiers, but there was a government issuing orders. They officially declared an insurgency and created a National Guard, which they had occupied the whole city. The news of the Le Cap insurgency created the third and final revolutionary wave that swept Kristoff's kingdom during the Revolution of 1820. This was a wave of chaos and destruction. The bonfire has caught. Everyone knew that Kristoff was on his last legs. It was obvious that the kingdom was falling. 
Cultivators took up arms against their bosses. They destroyed the plantations and looted them. Royal castles and government buildings were sacked. Smoke towers from the plantations in the northern plain were once again visible, as they had been in the summer of 1791. Christophe watched all of this with growing dread. He could now see fires on his own estates from his palace in Sansuki. His life's work, his kingdom, the plantation economy he had worked so hard to reconstruct was crumbling before his eyes. But he did not give up hope yet. He sent people to Le Cap to negotiate, but they were imprisoned. He then sent what remained of his army to Le Cap with permission to sack the city. This army, once they reached Le Cap, got off the sinking ship and defected to the insurgents. They and the Le Cap insurgents began marching to Sansuki to overthrow Christophe. On the night of the 8th, Christophe was told that the army sent to Le Cap had defected. This finally broke him. When he was told they were chanting, Long live liberty, he supposedly said, quote, But aren't they free? Unquote. Another quote supposedly from him is, All is lost, but the rebels may not lay hands on me. Christophe had no int- interest in being put on trial or tortured by his long oppressed subjects, so he asked for a gun. Even in the final hours of Christophe's regime, the people around him still feared him enough to follow his requests. He loaded the gun, pointed it at his heart, and fired. On October 8th, at 9 p.m., Henri Christophe committed suicide. The king was dead. The monarchy was dead. Long live freedom and the republic. Christophe's body was taken to Citadel Lafayette, where it was buried immediately to avoid it being desecrated and mutilated. The prisoners of Lafayette were released. Christophe had turned Lafayette into a fixed forced labor camp. He tortured prisoners at Lafayette to the point where one historian wrote that immediate execution by being thrown into a ravine, which Christophe did to some of the prisoners, was better than other forms of execution since it was immediate. The force from Cap Henry arrived at Sansuki. It was a joyous mob, happy that the tyrant was dead. Whereas Petion's death had led to extreme grieving and an absence of crime in Port-au-Prince, Christophe's death was celebrated and created crime. The mob flooded Sansuki and trashed the place. Everything was looted or destroyed. The royal palace at Sansuki was sacked, abandoned, and left to ruin. Today, if you go to Sansuki, you will see the crumbling ruins of a royal palace, damaged by earthquakes. After the death of Christophe, the provisional government in Le Cap had a mini-purge of his supporters. On October 18th, they killed about 10 people in a series of assassinations. Among these people were Christophe's two sons, the Haitian writer Vaste, and several other prominent figures from Christophe's government. The women in Christophe's family went into exile. It is often said that history is written by the victors, and oh man, history has not been kind to Christophe. There are plays that have been written that depict Christophe's life as a tragedy. These plays mock his absurd idea of a black monarchy in the New World. They view his nobility as a bunch of children playing dress-up. 
They depict Kristoff as a tragic figure, a horrible ruler, which in all fairness, he was. Kristoff's life is a tragedy. He started as a slave from a Caribbean colony. He rose from a slave to a servant to a prosperous hotel manager. Once the revolution hit, it gave him an opportunity to rise further in Haitian society, and he became a general by 1802. Then Christophe became the king of Haiti, and he created a thriving kingdom with a booming economy. The tragic part of Christophe is that he was an excessive tyrant. He was a war criminal and a mass murderer. He was a bloodthirsty dictator who re-enslaved his people. He betrayed his race, his class, and his origins. Christophe's legacy suffers for this, and it suffers because he ultimately lost to Petion's republic. While many of Petion's institutions, like his currency or his governmental system or, hell, his flag, still exist in Haiti to this day, the only things that exist of Christophe's legacy are his grand palaces and fortresses, in particular Citadel Lafayette, which has become a tourist attraction in Haiti. These palaces and citadels are a great metaphor for Christophe's regime. They are great and really impressive things, but they came at a huge human cost and provided no real benefit to the average Haitian citizen, like his plantation economy. It is now time to say goodbye to the first and last king of Haiti, His Majesty Henri Christophe. (laughs) 